We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is a legend, Mia Ives Rubley, who recently met with Kamala Harris and other leaders to discuss issues related to disability, race, and equality, is the director of Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. There's so much I admire about Mia. She has osteogenesis imperfecta, a genetic bone disorder more commonly known as brittle bone disease, and uses a wheelchair to get around. Since she was a little girl, she always fought through her own physical limitations. She played competitive sports and competed at an international level in wheelchair track, fencing, and adaptive CrossFit. Today, Mia fights to make spaces more accessible for people with disabilities. She founded and coordinated the Women's March Disability Caucus and works with a range of organizations as an independent consultant on accessibility issues. Welcome to ROG, Mia. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. I'm super glad to be able to uh, chat with you today. Thank you. Me too. I cannot wait to learn more from you and about you. So why don't we start with the story of Mia? Tell us a little bit about you. (laughs) The story of Mia. Yeah. So I was born in Busan, uh, South Korea was adopted by a uh, white family who had three other kids at the time, uh, moved to Washington State to a little town known as Walla Walla, Washington. It's a great roll off the tongue. You know, grew up there for a couple of years, and my parents had decided that the place just didn't have enough resources for two kids who had significant disabilities. So my, my oldest brother also has osteogenesis imperfect and other disabilities. And so they were really worried about the, the types of services we would be able to get in such a small town. And so my parents moved us all the way across the United States and we landed in North Carolina. So I grew up mostly in Greensboro, North Carolina, which Greensboro is well known in the civil rights community as the place where uh, one of the most famous sit-ins happened um, during the time of the civil rights movement. So, you know, I, I grew up in a very progressive household. So my parents spent a lot of time advocating for their kids. Um, three of us had uh, different types of disabilities and and so my mom was a big advocate for us while we were growing up, and my dad as well. I got into middle school, and my uncle, he was in the Paralympics. He was a part of the Paralympic soccer team. And so he invited us to come watch him in 1996 for the Atlanta Paralympics. And that was the first time that I really got to see a large group of individuals with disabilities all in one area where it became a a thing where I wasn't the the oddball in in the crowd, that there was tons of people in wheelchairs and 
on crutches and uh, having other mobility devices, et cetera. And so that was really eye-opening for me in understanding that there was a different side of disability and a different way to look at disability. And so after that, I quickly pushed my parents to allow me to do wheelchair sports and got involved in wheelchair sports. It helped teach me sort of the, the importance of how to identify as a disabled person um, and as a, an adaptive athlete. And so that was an important milestone in my life. And it, it actually, because of the strength that I got from doing all of those athletics, I became much more independent. It became much more of a, a goal for me to actually go to college. And so ended up going to the University of Illinois, where I studied sociology and was also a varsity wheelchair athlete. I became a vocational counselor where I worked with individuals with mental health disabilities, helping them find employment. But I would say 90% of that uh, work meant getting people connected with services. Now, I had been an individual who had been on Supplemental Security Income, SSI, and also on Medicaid. So I had had some experiences with the systems before. But what I didn't realize was just how widespread the issues were and how could affect people's lives. I decided that I was going to leave because... I, I wanted to help clients, but I felt like I wasn't doing enough or I didn't have enough power to be able to make the changes that need to happen. And so went into research for a little while, got frustrated in that as well. And so that was sort of around the time that the Women's March happened and had a, a conversation with some folks about trying to volunteer and originally, I had had no plans of creating my own caucus or, or doing any of that. But it was really seeing the lack of perspective and voices around disability and disabled women. You know, we started working with the national organizers to uh, work on accessibility issues, work on uh, uh, some of the sort of um, some of the, the comms around around it, some of the messaging around it to t make sure that it did include disabled women um, and disabled femmes. And so, you know, that, that helped sort of, it was sort of another huge sort of jumping off point, much like the, the Paralympics had been a jumping off point for, for some of my athletic endeavors. The, the Women's March helped me sort of find my own voice and find a way to work that that allowed me to become my full self, um, that I didn't have to portion myself off to to speak about a specific issue, et cetera. And after that, you know, I, I got to work on a couple of campaigns, which was amazing. I, I worked on the Warren campaign, and I also helped out with the, the Biden campaign and worked on several other local races in, in North Carolina, and then worked on the Georgia special election, and then landed at the Center for American Progress. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what an epic story. Mia, this is so profound to think about how you have continually navigated through obstacles and through like 
finding purpose. This is that's like the theme of what I'm hearing in your story is like you always sought to find purpose and how to use the gifts and strengths and talent and interests that you have in ways that you found fulfilling. What were conversations like related to being disabled or to equality or to serving others? Like give us a little glimmer into sitting in that kitchen or wherever it is that you convened. Yeah, I I don't think my my parents were very very particular in how they they treated me and my other siblings who had disabilities. We were expected to do chores just like all the other siblings. There was no um, tiptoeing around that. We were expected to to do as much as we could. You know, we were folding laundry. We were you know clearing the, clearing the tables. We were you know vacuuming our rooms, cleaning our rooms. Although my mother would tell you that I was not very good at it. And I I will admit that. Um, But yeah, my parents were always about making sure that we were as independent as possible. And I think that was a, a very important aspect to my parents was that they wanted to prepare us for adulthood, just like any other kid. And I think that's been a real problem that I've seen, especially, you know, I I've done coaching for disabled youth, uh, especially track and field and and basketball. And one of the things that I always worry about is when I see parents who are coddling their their disabled children. And and I understand, I totally understand sort of where they're coming from. They've spent so much time trying to keep their kids safe, keep their kids healthy. You know, it's it's a real juggling act and it's a real sort of balancing to, to, to make sure that your kid is healthy and safe. But then you also have to consider that they're going to become adults. So, you know, I think that there there has been issues around parents of disabled kids sort of treating their disabled kids differently and and how that can affect their sort of their their ability to transition out of high school and and into sort of more of an independent environment. They coddled us when we, right after surgery or, or right after getting sick or something like that. But, you know, as soon as we were up and at them, got to take care of yourself, kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's really helpful to understand. So what can you teach us about some of the myths and the stereotypes around hiring people with disabilities? And then once they're in an organization, how to empower them and really enable them to be their full productive selves. Yeah, I think, oh my gosh, how many myths are there around around employing uh, disabled people and disabled workers? I think one big myth is that disabled people don't work. That's the biggest myth that we see is that people don't see us as, as workers. And that is shown in sort of workers' rights movements, that is shown in sort of who is portrayed as as a contributor to society. And that has been the biggest, one of the biggest hurdles is people not seeing us as individuals who are capable of working. Um, and so how does that affect like things down the line? I think it affects, you know, the hiring. I have been to interviews where people are ask me, how are you going to even do this job? Not even asking me, like, what are the ways we can accommodate you? It's literally, I don't believe you can do this job. I don't know why you're interviewing here kind of, kind of thing. 
or people who will backtrack once they find out I'm in a wheelchair. And that's just for a physical disability. That's not counting mental health or intellectual disabilities. That's literally just talking about a physical disability and people's own conceptions around that. So I think, you know, it affects you when when you're in the hiring mode. It can affect your ability to to progress in your career. Because one thing that that often happens is a lot of the sort of activities that are required to sort of progress in your career, um, like going to happy hours, like going on work trips, like going, et cetera, right? These things that are often required or to, to work extra hours are sometimes not available or accessible or accommodating to, to disabled workers. And so that often makes it so that the individual has difficulty climbing the career ladder. And you look at, you know, a lot of times disabled people aren't able to take the real career risks that that need to happen in order to help push you in your career, because you are always thinking about, do I have healthcare benefits, right? Um, and while the ACA has been helpful, the, the coverage from the ACA is nowhere near the type of coverage that you would get from a good employee-based uh, health uh, health insurance. Um, it's not even close to like Medicaid standards. And so the problem is, is that like we continue to create systems to ensure we keep disabled people in poverty. We look at things like uh, supplemental security income, right? That has asset limits that don't allow individuals to save or earning limits that make sure that if an individual does finally get a job, that they're penalized for that job and can lose their benefits, which means that they can lose their Medicaid. And if somebody has a complicated health issue, then they might not be able to go get a job because they rely on Medicaid to be able to cover them while, whenever they have to be hospitalized. When we come back, Mia will share what she thinks needs to change and explains the difference between SSI and SSDI. Introducing the brand new QuadPod Podcast Network. At QuadPod, we have a variety of podcasts that are as unique as you. When you visit QuadPod.com, you'll see our shows listed by category as well as average episode length. Find a new podcast at QODPOD.com, the QuadPod Podcast Network. That's QODPOD.com. And we're back with more from Mia Ives Rubley, Director for the Disability Justice Initiative at American Progress. What, in your opinion, needs to change? You are really the most qualified person to have an opinion on this. Well, it's interesting because most people don't even realize there's a difference between SSI and SSDI. SSDI is Social Security Disability Insurance. SSI is Supplemental Security Income. And so, you know, the thing is, people don't even understand the programs. And so we have politicians making decisions on these programs, not even realizing the effects that it has on people's lives. And so I 
as a person who was on SSI and a person who worked at vocational rehabilitation, you know, I really saw the impacts of certain policies and how they affected individuals on the ground. And so when I was at vocational rehabilitation services, I would literally have to sit a person down and say, look, I know you want a job and I want to help you find a job. The problem is, is that you are an SSI and you are on Medicaid. This job that you're looking at doesn't have, isn't covered by health insurance. You won't get those benefits. Also, you're an individual who has been in and out of hospitals for the past year. And while you're stable right now, we're not sure if you're going to be stable in the next 10 months or even in the next year, right? And so what we have to decide is, is it worth it to lose your benefits and gain this part-time job? Is it better to stay on SSI and receive Medicaid to ensure that you receive um, the health care insurance that you need? And that is a bad dichotomy. It's a bad choice. It's a horrible choice to have to force people to make. And it's all because, you know, people fear going above their limit because, one, they could have to be forced to pay back whatever whatever they they owe based on the amount that they've earned. And so because Social Security Administration doesn't keep very good track of this. And so for me as an individual who had just gotten my full career at vocational rehabilitation, I sent documentation for almost a year, letting them know that I had been receiving, I, I had been employed and that I no longer needed SSI. And I had to knowingly put all of my payments, SSI payments, into a savings account so that I could make sure that I didn't spend that money so that I could pay it back Social Security Administration. And that's somebody that actually knows the system, right? Right. I was going to say, you are acutely aware of the system and how it works and what the penalties are. So you were preparing for that. But think about the average person who does not know that. Mia, what would you say are some of the conceptions that employers have had when considering hiring people with disabilities of any form? And what do you want them to know? Yeah. So I've actually had conversations with individuals employers in the past uh, about the the issue the many issues that they're concerned about around hiring uh, disabled workers and you know I, I actually created a, a toolkit in in response to some of these questions and some of the the questions that they have concern particularly around accommodations um, they don't understand sort of the the laws and the the they don't understand the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, Title I uh, part, which talks about employment. And they're not exactly sure what they're required to do and what they aren't required to do. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I will just state that. Um, but the thing that I talk to them about is that a majority of the accommodations that they can provide cost less than $100. A majority of them are actually don't cost anything. People are kind of shocked by that. Um, but some of the things that I suggest to, to individuals is one, to review their handbook to see sort of where they talk about accommodations, because a majority 
of employers will copy and paste this specific line um, from other handbooks. And it's like, it's amazing because it's word for word. I see it in every single handbook that I have reviewed so far that basically is very, very vague. And it just says, uh, talk to your supervisor if you require accommodations. And that's it. That That's the total of what they talk about in terms of accommodations. And when I talk to them, I'm like, look, okay, you're going to be required to provide accommodations, not only when you employ the individual, but also during the interview process. So you need to think about the whole process from start of hiring an individual and doing the interviews, getting that person to a place that they can get promoted. That's the wide variety that you need to cover for accommodations. So that means that you, one, should have a separate line item in your budget to cover accommodations. That's just straight up. Which could be as low as $100, you're saying. Like, what's an example of the, some of the free ones, just so listeners have a sense of what you're referring to? Yeah, so uh, adjusting somebody's schedule is a free one. Allowing an individual to work from home, another free one. Allowing an individual to bring their service dog into the office, another free one. So a lot of these accommodations are free of charge. Um, I would say um, I would have at least a thousand dollars in in your budget item, depending on how many people you employ. Um, accommodations can go anywhere from a standing desk, which you know a lot of people get standing desks now. It can mean um, getting a keyboard that's ergonomic, right? Getting a chair that's ergonomic. All of those count within accommodations, and people don't realize that that's actually an accommodation that is covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, oftentimes they're just like, oh yeah, we just you know pay for it out of our you know normal um, office budget. And I'm just like, yeah, but that's an accommodation, don't you realize? Um, and so you know thinking about you know how are you talking about accommodations is extremely important because not only does it show that you're committed to it, but it also sort of signals to disabled, uh, potential disabled workers that you are a friendly environment for them. Um, and so will help increase the amount of disabled people willing to apply to your job, increasing your pool of applicants. Um, because let me tell you, I disabled people are some of the most adaptive, creative individuals I've ever met. So you want to go after them. Um, and so, you know, thinking about you need to provide accommodations for when you're hiring, you know, interviewing and hiring an individual. So you need to make a statement within your application saying, hey, if you require accommodations, please contact us. That's actually part of a requirement by the ADA. Two, when you're inviting somebody to do an interview, have that statement in, in your line, in your email saying, if you require accommodations, please contact blah, blah, blah. So three, actually have a person that's in charge of accommodations. Make sure that they're an individual that understands what accommodations mean. Understand the wide variety of accommodations is actually willing to sort of push beyond the the standard subset of accommodations that most people provide, right? Um, 
if you are an organization that wants to be extremely open and welcoming to the disability community, you shouldn't go for the bare minimum. So you should be attempting to be as accommodating and open as possible because that's going to bring in more talented individuals who are excited about working at your uh, location. And so making sure that you have an individual who thinks that accommodations is actually a, an important part of making a work environment work, then you know that's the person that you want to bring in. Um, you don't want somebody who is skeptical of that and who is penny pinching and you know doesn't want to provide accommodations. That's not helpful in, in your in your HR department. Um, next, what you want to do is make sure that you have a process within your handbook stating how an individual will request accommodations. So often, again, like I said, it's very vague. It's like talk to your supervisor, right? Right which is actually kind of problematic for them because individuals who state that you aren't providing accommodations for them push back and say, hey, look, you don't have a set standard of how to I can get accommodations and you don't have a timeline on when I can get accommodations. I think your timeline is off um, and that's taking too long and I don't know when I'm getting accommodations, so I'm going to sue you. You should, at the bare minimum, have a process in your handbook stating this is how long you should expect um, it'll take to get feed, or get an appointment with our accommodation person in order to talk about providing accommodations. This is how long it should take for you to actually receive the accommodations. You should have an outline with a specific person that handles them. And you created the Disability Inclusion Toolkit for nonprofit organizations when you were at the Ford Foundation. So we'll put that in the show notes so that individuals who are hearing what Mia is saying and taking this seriously thinking, okay, how can I make sure that I'm using inclusive language from the, from the job description to the invitation for an interview and how can I do it right? How can I set up my organization and my system so that people feel included and welcomed and are supported with the tools, resources, and support that's necessary. That's fantastic. So where can people find you, Mia? <laughs> where can people find me? Everywhere. Uh, no. Uh, uh, no. Uh, people can find me on uh, on Twitter, mostly. Uh, my handle is CMiaRoll. So that's S-E-E-M-I-A-R-O-L-L. Um, and that's my handle for all of the... So social media platforms. So you can find me on on most of the social media platforms um, uh, if you just yeah use that handle. Absolutely awesome. Thank you for investing your precious time with us, and particularly thank you for your advocacy, for your your fight, for your willingness to channel your strengths and your energy as a force for good. I so deeply appreciate you. I am so glad to be here. You know, I think it's really important to understand that disabled people have the wants and needs and uh, dreams that, that any person has and that we should be as accommodating as possible because our community is extremely talented and deserve a chance to, to uh, work at your, your, your place of business. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you.
ROG Takeaway Tip, how to apply what we've learned to our own work and lives. Mia challenges us to think about our policies and accommodations. Policies. Does your organization have an employee handbook? If so, what does your employee handbook say about hiring people with disabilities? What does it say about accommodations? How will you learn more about ADA, SSI, SSDI, or Medicaid for your disabled employees? As Mia said, make sure people with disabilities are at the table when policy is being made. Accommodations. Let's start at the beginning, the interview process. Does your current process include a question to candidates about accommodations? Once they're being interviewed, how do you inquire about what accommodations a particular talent may need? Once that person's hired, what accommodations do you offer? What could you offer? Consider how inclusive the interview, hiring, onboarding, and employment process are for individuals with disabilities and how can you make them even better? This week, take some time to inquire about your current policies and accommodations. A small shift that you could make this week is an inclusive statement in the email to interviewees like, let us know if you need any accommodations. It's kind, inclusive, and easy. Next week, please join us for Wade Thomas, author of From the Heart, Achieving Epic Results Through Building a Heart-Based Culture of Compassion and Empathy. Until next week, stay generous, everyone. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.